Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Smirnoff Number no. 21 Vodka Ornaments, the perfect white elephant gift. If you go to one of those gift swaps this year, now you don't have to wonder what to get. Uh, you know, finding the right gift can be tough, can be expensive, but Smirnoff brings you a fun and affordable option. Give people what they actually want for the holidays this year, provided they are adults, and that is vodka. It's a two-in-one option. You get decorations, you get vodka in the same gift. So give the best gift this holiday. Holiday season Smirnoff number no. twenty one vodka ornaments. As always, please sip responsibly and only share with people twenty one and up. Hello, future links. This is Ken and this is John. We're going to take a second here before the show begins to celebrate the holiday winter solta- solstice season. Mm-hmm. The solstice, the solstice, we call it. It's like the Soviets. The poultice. If you put a poultice <laughs> on a Soviet because he's turning red, it's a solstice. Uh, just to mention that uh, with the. Advent of the holiday season in late November 2019. I like how you threw Advent in there. That's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. just a lot of just a lot of subtle Christianity mm-hmm. every time I talk. <laughs> I'm offended by the Starbucks cups that don't yeah. have a manger on them. Every day I open a little door in Ken <laughs> and I get another tiny piece of chocolate. Uh, you know, we we were so thankful for your support around the Thanksgiving season that we, uh, after months of putting it off, we finally rolled out a series of delightful benefits and rewards for those who have supported the show. We've been, we've been <clears throat> so grateful uh, for the Patreon support of our program. It has eased our transition away from our former corporate masters and made us feel like independent operators and futurelings ourselves. And so we wanted to give back in this time of giving and actually have uh, Patreon levels that have different uh, rewards. So give yourself the gift of perks this holiday season. What are some of our perks, Ken? Well, anybody who donates at any of the Patreon tiers receives probably the main perk, which is a monthly omnibus episode of Addenda Mm. that goes reader feedback, pointing out uh, corrections and additions and addictions, possibly. A lot of presentlings have information they'd like to share with us about various topics. Sometimes it's because they live in the town that we discussed. Sometimes it's because they are uh, lapidiatrists. If there's one thing all Omnibus listeners have in common, it's they have information to share. <laughs> so we, and uh, we wanted to make sure that went in the time capsule as That's well. right. That's right. We're going to cover, cover all the bases. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fun listen, a fascinating listen. A new monthly episode uh, uh, available to all our Donors at higher donation levels, you get access to a, a video, a image archive, um, show notes, and uh, mailbag oddities and whatnot. You're going to be astonished by the difference between our show notes. Mine are in pencil and John's are in ink. That's, yeah, basically it. That's the main Ken's one. are legible and mine are not. John's have pentagrams they on them. often do. <laughs> uh, at even higher tiers, you can get an autographed copy of those show notes uh, mailed to you. Uh, or even uh, the ability to choose a show topic and rocket your preferred omnibus idea to the top of the queue. Yeah, we're going to try and make that as difficult as possible uh, (laughs) for you to achieve, but it is a perk. It may be collaborative if your idea is terrible or offensive, Uh, and uh, or even uh, video chats with the two of us. So go to patreon.com slash omnibus project, see what tempts you, what tickles your fancy, mm, what mm. craveable new benefits there are for mm. you to enjoy. Crave. Crave. My favorite word. Moist. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays, everyone.
accessed entry 652.ps10303, certificate number My friend Seth is a facilities manager guy at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Institution. I don't know what the full name is. Here in Seattle. It is a big operation. Have you spent any time in and around Fred Hutch? It's a local... Yeah, I have. Um, I remember when biotech first arrived on the Seattle business scene. This was going to remake Seattle. We were going to be the biotech city. We sure were. And they, they took over the old steam plant. Down, uh, down on Lake Union, which is fam- yeah, famously sort of a landmark that had because it's still got these smokestacks. Was it five or six big smokestacks? <sighs> five. I've been driving by it my whole life. I think five. Well, when they restored that building to turn it into a tech campus, Zymogenetics. Zymogenetics. They took the old smokestacks down, boo, and put up fake smokestacks that are not connected to the building at all. So the current smokestacks are not even... They're fiberglass, and they are bolted to the roof without... They, they serve no function, because they you know they cleaned out all of the machinery that would have made those necessary. You know the Titanic had a fake smokestack. Only, That's right. Only three of those were functioning, and the ship just looked ugly. They were off-center, so they put a fake one on. I always wonder if they had something burning in it. Did the fake one smoke? Oh, yeah, it had, it had dry ice. <laughs> it's like a smoke. It's like a high school production of Midsummer Night's Dream going on in there. <laughs> so you hung around, hung out around Fred Hutch. I mean, it's it's a huge. It's grown campus to be now. an enormous uh, like uh, pie slice down there, but it's been so overshadowed by by Paul Allen's tech campus nearby that became Amazon's headquarters. And yeah, we never expected downtown to become Amazon country. Seattle was bracing for downtown to become Biotech International, right? Which and in Biotech took off here because the University of Washington Hospital was such a, a sort of f- like a, a fecund 
generation point of this kind of biology. Fred Hutch pioneered uh, bone marrow transplantation for for treatment of cancer, which kind of led to this whole class of immunotherapy treatments for cancer, which a whole variety of cancers respond to. I, I my friend Seth uh, is is just he's in the facilities team there, you know, which mm-hmm. is. All the infrastructure stuff. It's everything from air conditioning ducts to the, you know, the the super cold freezers. There are a lot of labs there. They need a they need Bunsen burners. They, yeah, he 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 brings in all the Bunsen burners. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right here, master. <laughs> uh, but he was going to have me speak at some kind of facilities management convention, mm-hmm. and he was like, "But let me give you a tour first. So I got a tour of that's the kind of gig that you get that I don't. Is that what is that your dream to go well, play? Uh, yeah. <laughs> to go play Pink Floyd songs to facilities managers. Yeah, to facilities managers in a giant conference room at Fred Hutchinson. Uh, it was actually up in Linwood, but I got a, I got a tour of the building. Better. I got a tour of the building first. And uh, it, was the kind of, it was the kind of thing where the tour was, it turned out to be extremely detailed. Like I did not know how many hours I was going to be looking at, oh. at different kinds of tunnels and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, like between each floor at Fred Hutch, I guess there's like a little mini floor. Uh, mini like, floor. With like, you know, like being John Malkovich style, like three, th- four foot ceilings. What's going on in there? Just all the, all oh, the, the ducting. ducting and, oh, you know, wow. cause they've got to suck in this air and suck out that air and all kinds of complicated machinery and wiring. Did they let uh, you look at an electron microscope? Did you look through anything at anything? No. The funny thing is none of this was cancer related. These, oh. these are all super advanced you know, what do you call it? When HVAC. <laughs> no, when buildings are super uh, green, eco-friendly, oh, they're all certified. Sure. Uh, Sigma uh, 6 or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Certified. Uh, it's like LED, le- yeah, lead, lead or something lead. like that. Yeah, it's, you have to speak lead there. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they've got this am- amazing state-of-the-art stuff. So the building is super efficient and it can run on a AA battery and... Uh, but none of this was cancer related. But the, just talking to him and the other guys there, they were all super true believers about how they're they're part of this brave crusade. And and the, you know, Fred Hutch is just millimeters away from solving, of curing all these kinds of cancers. You know, he he was showing me all these kind of displays they have in their visitor center about how you just need to put salamander DNA in the right sure. place, and the tumor will just light up like. Like right. an electric eel or something, you, you, I, you know. You put the lime in the coconut. <laughs> you got to put the lime in the coconut. Yeah. That's uh, when when all that stuff opened down there. I think, um, you know, because our generation, of course, was the one that was cynical about everything, and we worried a lot about genetic engineering and mm. how they were going to. We weren't we weren't concerned about uh, putting corn syrup in in our tomatoes. We were worried about. The, the the prospect of making superhumans or uh, some in, in right. some way somebody's introducing somebody's going to make some cow octopus cow octopus yeah no no offense to no the octopuses that are listening to the show but no that we were going to uh, that 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 people were going to not not just eliminate disease but that there would be some Gattaca level of yeah uh, it's, it's all the ethical questions around cloning right right and, right. and uh, Eugenics and all the weird areas around that. Right, it's not wrong. Super people. That. Well, I, I don't know. We stopped talking about it. Boy, that that used to be a. There was a, there were a, were a couple of years there where that seemed like the real danger. We just started making billion dollar movies about super people. It's probably all a government campaign to 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 so that we don't freak out when they when unveil the, the actual when the Uber Yeah, yeah. Like everyone's wondering why all these movies have to be 
Avengers now. Like, these are Marvel comics they can't sell 30,000 copies of. Right. Why, are, no, why is this the only kind of movie there is? It's, it's, it's getting ready for them. It's government subsidized. Yeah, hello, sure. Grays. It's a disinformation campaign. That You know, that's funny. We never think about that. But when the UFOs do come, all they have to do is wear leotards with, like, logos on the front and capes. And we'll be like, amazing! Yay, finally! Hey, here they are! All I wanted was Avengers, and now here they are. So cosplay is, is yeah. what will lead to the enslavement of maybe that's humanity. What it, maybe that's why the ri- rising cosplay. But there did seem to be, just from my afternoon tour there, there did see, be, seem to be some kind of feeling at Fred Hutch in general that they were just on the brink of a precipice, that cancer is going to just start falling like dominoes to these new advances. And, uh, you know, it's the big boogeyman because it's something that terrifies everyone. Right. We've all seen multiple friends and relatives and, you know, older relatives uh, succumb to cancer. And Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace, for example. Right. Do you consider her a friend or a relative? Uh, Well, you know, I I feel like having read about all the incest that happened, I believe I am probably related to her at some level. (laughs) And if you were related to her, that wouldn't rule you out as a romantic partner, probably. Or as a romantic. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, we've always been told, you know, cancer is not going to be, in in our era, in the last few decades, the line has always been cancer can't be cured. You know, it's, it's, there's no such thing as, there's not going to be a vaccine. Well, like AIDS has become a manageable disease, but there, but it's a virus. There's Mm -hmm. never been a cure. And cancer is not a single vector. It's not a virus or a disease. It's a, it's a thing your body can just start doing. Right. And it turns out your body can do it in a thousand different ways. Just, just kill itself with with tissues it shouldn't be growing. Well, there's got to be a way to to turn it from a from a um like a mistake to a to a theme, right? Sure. Can't we use the use our cancer growing powers to Can I just make my biceps real big? <laughs> can, I, can I like get my hairline a little more uh, solid? Right. 9 out of 10 guys would make their penis big out of cancer. Just make give me a cancer penis. How come I did the G-rated version of that joke? With well, hairline and bicep, and am. you had to go right to the Sorry, jokes. Sorry, that's where it's, that's my role here. Porfirio <laughs> Rubio Rosa. <laughs> hey Ken, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you need a last minute gift that's you know that's going to wow somebody? Very often, because I take pride in giving good gifts, but I also really procrastinate shopping for gifts. Well, can you, can you help me with this problem? Yeah, John? I have uh, discovered an excellent solution to this. It is the uh, Mrs. Fields. A super box of delicious cookies, brownies, and treats. Uh, I've been snacking from one for the last couple of weeks, and uh, it has exceeded my expectations. They sent me. They sent me one as well. Yeah, and it was probably the happiest I've ever been since starting this show. When a box of cookies it's, and brownies and blondies showed up in the mail in a, in a delightful festive tin. Yeah, and they were at first. You're like cookies in the mail. Are they going to be good? They were really good. They're super good, and uh, and it's a great example of a thing that um, if you if you need a gift for somebody and you you just want to pull the trigger on something, you can't go wrong with this Mrs. Fields box of goodies. You can sit at your country, sit at your computer, and it will show up across the country uh, in a matter of days. And Mrs. Fields will. You can add a personal custom message to, uh, or, or even a company logo or a family photo to the gift boxes. You know, Mrs. Fields is a real person. She's not one of these Betty Crocker, Sarah Lee corporate inventions. There's a real. There was a real Debbie Fields, and she made amazing 
cookies and brownies, and uh, and these are her recipes. Well, to uh, sweeten the deal, our listeners will get 20% off their entire order if they go to mrsfields.com and enter the promo code OMNIBUS. That's M-R-S-F-I-E-L-D-S dot com. Mrs. Field or Mrs. Fields. Or Mercer. <laughs> dot com and enter Omnibus. That's 20% off. 20% off any gift at mrsfields.com, promo code Omnibus, or to look at it another way, 20% more delicious cookies for the same price. My kids ate, they finished off the whole box while I was thinking of bringing it to a party we'd have been invited to. And I went down to grab the box and it was suspiciously light because my kids loved them. I am not a dummy. And so I put my Mrs. Fields box of cookies on top of the refrigerator without revealing to anyone in the house where these delicious cookies were coming you from. You just have shorter children and than then I, I do. Just, no, then I just, I, I, I trickle the cookies out into the, into the Roderick verse and everybody goes, wow, amazing. But I keep the stash. My son is six foot one. I can't fool him by hiding cookies on top of the fridge anymore. There are a lot of cookies in this box. Mrsfields.com, promo code Omnibus. Your cookies are on the way. So our bodies are just really good at killing us. Right. There's, there's nothing I can do a thousand ways. Uh, I don't know a thousand. Do you know a thousand guitar chords? Or No. There probably aren't a thousand sex positions. There aren't a thousand guitar chords. Uh, but there's like literally a thousand ways your body can make some awful thing happen to a tissue that shouldn't. And then you'll it'll just kill itself. And, and that, that, that's a new discovery because people used to die of cholera or whatever. And now we live long enough, you know, we've killed all the things that can kill us from without, and now our bodies have started killing us from within. It's really a metaphor for the American century. We, we, we held off all our enemies, but it turned out that really didn't matter. <laughs> but uh, as recently as in our lifetime, yours and mine, there was a lot of magical thinking around cancer and curing cancer. And you might remember the boom of excitement around interferon. Is this was this ever on your radar? Absolutely. I mean, I think interferon was a uh, was something that I read an awful lot of editorials about uh, for a time. It caught people's eye yeah. because it really was one of these. Uh, this could be the game changer. It's, it was like cold fusion. Cold fusion is exactly right. Um, in 1957, two scientists working in Britain, uh, a, a British scientist named Alec Isaacs and his Swiss, I believe, colleague John Lindenmann. Uh, took some embryonic chick cells, like from a, a, from a chicken, from a unhatched chicken, and exposed them to a flu virus, an influenza virus that they had inactivated. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, a uh, traditional kind of v- uh, inoculation. inoculation kind of a thing. But they're exposing these embryonic cells to see what happens. And interestingly, these cells produced this kind of sticky protein that no one had ever seen before. Now, when that happens to a teenager, they will panic. But <laughs> Send them to military school. <laughs> but in this case, they were very excited because this new kind of sticky peptide they'd created, uh, when they exposed it to live flu, it stopped the influenza virus from replicating. Whoa, so sticky they, peptides. They thought they had done, you know, kind of the vaccination smallpox kind of thing, but on a cellular level. And because they had interfered with the replication of the virus, they thought, we have done it. We have created a new thing called interferon. Hmm. They, had a, they had a great space age name for it, which I think is a huge part 
of the story here is the branding is very good. Sure, interferon. It makes you just sit up and and Logan's run. It sounds like something that couldn't possibly exist yet. It sounds like unobtainium. Right. Right. Oh, we finally have interferon. Right. We uh, needed now, it this whole time. Now, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's what uh, it was. It's what allowed Luke to have a bionic hand. Right. It's it's like midichlorians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you give it to a wide receiver, and then there's no. Uh, no head injury. Yeah, no pass interferon or whatever. Um, but it, it uh, so this hits the media, this idea that we've created this new, it turns out to be the first of a unsuspected kind of fluid called cytokines, a, a thing that a cell can secrete that has immunosuppressing properties. And does a cell ever secrete cytokines on its own? Uh, no, you, you, well, in this case, to get interferon, you have to go through this whole song and dance of exposing it to some denatured or some deactivated virus thing. And so this is a, this is a, a thing that cells themselves didn't know they could make. I guess. Huh? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a property they have, or maybe it just on a, on a lesser scale or in conjunction with something else. It, it had never at least been isolated. Right. Uh, and when it hits the media, it's a big deal. You and I remember, like, it was a, there was a full hour of the McNeil-Lehrer report about the groundbreaking possibilities of interference. I was there front and center. And you my, every night. With my microwave popcorn. You and your family were watching Nova and <laughs> Cosmos and... Uh, PBS News. <laughs> you're watching your American Masters and your Dateline and your... Right. Uh, National your, Geographic specials. Yeah, your uh, Disney after-school specials. <laughs> after-school specials. Uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. I saw this in my, like, I, I think it was in a, like a elementary school textbook. Hmm. It was some, one of the reading samples we were supposed to read was about how everyone's worried about cancer, but guess what? It's just, uh, once we get interferon up to speed, you know, say goodbye to cancer. And was this an, uh, an essay you were reading in order to, to pass a reading test on the SAT <laughs> exactly. or the PSAT? Hey, this is off the subject, but uh, an excerpt from one of my children's books just got bought by the state of, I think, Pennsylvania to be one of their reading samples on a reading comprehension Yay! standardized test. Wow, there's no higher achievement. I feel like I've, it's a real apotheosis when you become part of the standardized test. Yeah, well, and I'm sure that, that uh, I think it's, it's up to me to make a criticism that it's just uh, it's just making those tests more and more white, not less and less. <laughs> we found the most diverse thing we could: uh, a forty-five-year-old white guy <laughs> from a game show writing a children's book. <laughs> but this was very formative for me at ten years old, or whenever I saw this in my third-grade textbook, because the upshot of the piece was pretty much like, "This is the future; it's all taken care of." Uh, and the idea being that. That viruses replicate, and if we can just interfere on them, <laughs> as it were, uh, we can stop their. We we can't we can't cure their desire to replicate. We just make it difficult for them. It's you know the the mechanism was never actually explained. People were treating this like it was a magic bullet because you know the the Times piece I read from the sixties makes the claim that this is the body's main defense against illness. And now we have finally harnessed it. We found the secret. It's like we've isolated the secret of how their white blood the cells system works. Except they needed to be triggered. They've been superpowered. Uh -huh. They've been, you know, it's like giving the Hulk gamma radiation or something. Uh, -huh. uh you know, you 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 kick the cell until it produces the magic juice. And then this will do everything. And it 
it's really, you know, these the, all this media hype really suggested that these things would give us a, a magical, miraculous, protective power against disease. So this doesn't attack the virus. It strengthens the cell. Right. It's not clear what it would do against cancer because, again, cancer does not come from a bacteria or a virus. Right. But the the media, the breathless media coverage of this really said, and of course, this because this is just your body's natural yeah. disease-fighting power, it would clearly work on viral, bacterial, even cancer, whatever. So, so it's a herpes cure. <laughs> is, that, that, is, that, is that what you see when you, <laughs> is that what you hear when you see oh, cure? Oh, wow. Finally. <laughs> but, uh, but, but. They're just hoping that it makes the cells also resistant to whatever mechanism it is that causes them to be corrupted by cancer. Sure. If it's, right. if it's doing good things, then that'll probably include it's cancer. Like, it's like Buckminster Fuller's vitamin C. Yes. Yeah. Dimaxion. <laughs> uh, is it, wasn't Linus Pauling the vitamin C oh, guy? Oh, is that right? Yeah. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Like right. all you need to do is find the one secret. And this goes back to the beginnings of like for thousands of years – People have had this idea that somewhere out there, there is a panacea. Right. Uh, panacea was a Gre- the name of a Greek goddess whose name, I think, means, you know, heals all. You know, she, mm-hmm. she, she was the goddess of universal remedy. No matter what was wrong, her miraculous powers could cure it. And this was one of the main goals of medieval alchemy was to isolate, you know, you want the philosopher's stone, you know, the things that can turn gold to lead to gold and confer eternal life. One of the main things they're looking for is this elixir. Right. You really want a cure for uh, hepatitis and melancholy. They didn't have hepatitis. Hepatitis having not yet been invented. They mostly just wanted to cure melancholy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, and it, I think it made sense to them back then. You know, today we know it's bogus. You know, now that we understand what the vectors of these diseases are, it's obvious to us, or it seems very unlikely that one thing would cure them all, Right. Right, but back then they didn't understand the vectors, and also they kind of felt like the nat- they had this religious belief that the natural state of humanity was to be resistant to all of it. Right, like if you read in the Bible, all these patriarchs in Genesis going back to Adam, they lived for nine hundred years. Yeah, so the implication is that disease didn't bother them. So well, and also disease was connected to moral turpitude. Right. So if we could just get if we could just restore that natural state, that makes it seem like a much more attainable task, right? Right. And then we can just be like Methuselah and all these guys, and I, I'll be able to smoke my pipe without coughing and my mucus being a weird color. Thank goodness! Finally, I can go back to smoking my pipe. So this is kind of the the last burst of this kind of magical thinking that science will find this panacea. And so interferon in these headlines just stands in for thousands of years of people thinking. The elixir's out there, the right. magic medicament, as you would say. Mm-hmm. I would. Uh, and the problem is that uh, as people start wanting to test the properties of interferon, the problem is it's in very short supply. How is it made? Well, at you, first— You have to squeeze these cells and create the orange juice? It really is like hand-squeezing orange juice. You, you, get, you get donated blood from people. You have to extract all the white cells— and then you have to of do course. you have to do what Isaacs and Lindemann did, which is expose all the white cells to something bad that you've denatured that you've deactivated, right. make it secrete its magical goop, and then you you collect the sweet sweet goop. This requires a lot of ducting in uh, in very small floors. Lots of centrifuge. Yeah, you need a lot of three <laughs> three foot ceilings to get all the the centrifuge ventilation. And the math is such that basically you need two hundred and seventy blood donations just to give you a week's worth of 
interferon treatment. Yeah. Not to mention all the the man hours that go into making the interferon. This like, doesn't seem like an effective way to combat millions of cases of cancer. No, I mean, with from 270 blood donors, you can save a lot of lives. So it's a hard case to make that really you should take all that out and squeeze out of it a tiny, tiny amount of of uh, interferon, the magical juice that we don't know what it does. Oh, I see what you're saying. Blood donoring, uh, blood in its natural form is a lifesaver in terms of that's being a valuable a- medical commodity for transfusion. And so, just to make the academic case that I need 270 blood donors just to give me their blood, most of which I'm going to throw away, right? That I'm going to use to make magic hypothetical goop. Um, it's it's hard for anybody to to get the funding for that. Right. Uh, somebody estimated that a pound of interferon back in those days cost about twenty billion dollars. <laughs> wow! And I remember this stat showing up in my little seven seven year old reading excerpt, and and just and because they make much of this, they know kids are wowed by that, so they're like, "It's a million times more valuable than gold." That's that's the power of interferon, right? And to us, that was a measure of just how amazing and sought and sought after it was and how powerful it was. And really it's just a measure of how extremely hard to extract it is. What was the effective dosage? Like one pound of interferon? Could it, could it cure all the cancer in the world? Sure. You imagine it's like a a fantasy novel where you just need one drop from the magical vial. Uh, I think it was a, I think very small doses, dosages were where the studies started there. I, I saw a lot of news reports from, uh, I think we're now into the 70s, uh, $3,000 vials uh, f- arrive in Glasgow from Denmark. Uh, uh, a Scottish hospital has been uh, has all these horrible cancer cases, and they're just pleading with these state-of-the-art Scandinavian researchers, let us try some of this interferon on cancer, and let's see what happens. And so little tiny vials, $3,000, are given to a child with ear cancer. And the funny thing about the story is it announces that uh, after just a few weeks on the treatment, the child could see again. (laughs) Well, yes, because he had ear cancer, not eye cancer. No, it turned out that the cancer had spread throughout his his head and actually— blinded him. Yeah, he he actually had been blinded. And he did have sight return in one eye, and, uh, and his ears improved as well. And of course, this is this being Britain, that is enough for the tabloids to just start screaming, magic drug, miracle in Scotland. And he's not, uh, this, this child is not receiving any other treatment. I think it's, uh, I think this is used in initially last ditch cases. Right, I see. And this is, you see this today with cancer. If you've ever known anybody who's fighting cancer, it gets to a point where they've tried all the stuff and then they and their families are just clutching at straws for what's the new experimental stuff. Right. We I read that there's I read on the internet there's this one guy in Minnesota, there's this one guy in Pakistan. Sure, the can, rubbing crystals. Can we try this? Yeah, and this is why yeah. Andy Kaufman goes to Mexico, Mexico and has some guy con him with cow intestines. Uh, but that's exactly what happens in this case. These headlines trumpet this amazing development and suddenly there's tens of thousands, you know, there's England alone probably has 100,000 people with cancer at the time. Right. All these cancer sufferers and their families are now just storming hospitals. Can you imagine the, that desperate feeling of, of— It's awful. Yeah. And it's uh, and it, you see yourself in it. Like, if, if that was you, you would absolutely be grappling. You know, it's the stages of grief. You'd or be bargaining child. as well. Or yeah. your child, right? I will do anything. And so these people are weeping and literally offering, you know, what their, their care providers, what can we give to get on this interferon list? 
And And $3,000 doesn't seem insurmountable, but that $3,000 is not. No, that's that's a little vile. It's not like you can just go buy it for $3,000. And these are just anecdotal reports. You know, nobody has actually done a study yet. You know, I, I guess around, there's some U.S. anecdotes about the same time of doctors who happen to have some on hand who see what it'll do on cancer and they get encouraging results. One small survey is done on with people with osteogenic sarcoma. But apart from this kind of run on the bank of the interferon bank, nobody's actually published work on what this stuff actually does. And it's not until uh, the very late 70s that a British a company in Kent called Welcome, what, it's Welcome, but it's got two L's. I hope it's somebody's name. Welcome. No, it's, they're, they're, it's a play on the word get well. They want you to come. It could be a and name. Well. It could be Welcome. I don't know. They have found a way to culture, to make interferon in a lab with, by cell culturing. Basically, they got these 20 foot high tanks where they've, they've got some stem, like embryonic cell lines that they've preserved in some way to immortalize them. It's it's just a more, they've still got to figure out how to stimulate it and how to purify the results. But finally, there's an industrial process to start to make this stuff in quantity. And it's still expensive. But now there's interferon on hand to start testing. Uh, it's given to, um, you know, one lucky patient, you know, kind of this test case, some patient zero type. And uh, <laughs> it, in kind of a sad, ironic twist, the patient immediately goes into respiratory arrest. Oh, no. Because they're using, it turns out that to they this, were allergic to the binder? <laughs> no, to this day, one, something that wasn't known because interferon had only existed in such small quantities. But to this day, we now know that one of the primary problems with interferon, not hinted at in my third grade textbook, is that it has flu-like side effects. Oh. I assume because you're, you're treating this stuff with, with DNH. It's now believed that, um, so it's, there's some toxicity to it. Far from being a cure-all, Actually, the body reacts badly to it. Does it inoculate you to feel flu at least? We now believe that interferon is the thing that your cells, you know, that cytokines like interferon are secreted by cells when exposed to viruses like flu. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why flu is accompanied by these aches and pains and fevers. Like that's the medium through which the symptom appears. So if you're just going to isolate this stuff and give it to the patient, you're just going to get... You know, you may get some of the benefit, but you're definitely going to get all the aches and pains and fevers of having the flu. So this as well. is a natural process of cells to combat viruses, uh, as, as not a thing that that human technology just just uh, saw for the first time. I guess you know, we, I guess we had we certainly hadn't seen it, and I don't know if that means that uh, you know it had not been isolated or. You know, your body, different parts of your body are squirting different fluids at different uh, other different parts of your body all the time. So it might be something that science had to concentrate and isolate in order to actually know what was going on. But yeah, if that theory is correct, like that's that's part of why being sick makes you feel awful. Your cells are making interferon. It's interfering with your good mood and your ability to get out of bed and eat solid food. Uh, and in a couple of these early high-profile cases, the patient actually later died. Uh-huh. Um, in some cases, after making encouraging headlines. Died of cancer or of something unrelated, of flu? Uh, I think the, the patient with respiratory arrest did survive. The patient, it, that could have killed that patient. The interferon could have killed that patient. In that case, uh, he survived. But, you know, many of the cases of 
promising progress were actually followed by a a a quick downturn and death, presumably from the cancer, but it was definitely eating into the miracle drug reputation of interferon. And again, it's a problem with this kind of story that the the breathless advance is reported all right. over the world. Right. It's the it's it's cold fusion all over again. Yeah. As we saw with cold fusion, you know, there then there follows a confused period where nobody, you know, it's it, people are more excited to write the breakthrough story than they are to write the um, uh, the bummer takedown story. Well, and you know, that's one of the problems of media, particularly media that isn't the media that's up to the minute, right? Rather than slow media. We talked about this when we talked about cold fusion. It's it's the same problem you see today is that when actual science reporting gets filtered through many, many layers from between the time somebody writes an academic paper to the time you hear a local newscaster talking about it or it shows up in a BuzzFeed listicle. Right. And as it's gone through those many, many steps, it gets less and less reliable, like a game of telephone, because the... You know, the academics, as we saw in the cold fusion segment, are certainly incentivized to make their trumpet their breakthrough the biggest way possible. But at least that's tempered by their worries about their reputation. Yeah. The media at this point knows there's no reputational downside. Sure. Tomorrow to, is a new day. Right. Media cycles are now 10 seconds. Ram trucks. Motor Trend's back-to-back truck of the year. We're not bragging about it. We're just being honest. The landscape's changed, and we've changed with it. Stronger, more powerful, innovative, and more luxurious. You think an award like this would give us permission to take a victory lap? Well, you'd be dead wrong. The only thing on our mind is getting better. Delivering harder for our customers and pushing the limits of what's possible. Because when you lead from within, you redefine what a truck can do. Ram. Built to serve. Ram is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. So does interferon over time demonstrate that it does have a, a practical use? Well, uh, in n- 1980, shortly after Wellcome started doing their cell culture tanks, uh, that, that technology was made obsolete by Genentech, the company that first was able to use genetic engineering to kind of make artificial interferon. You know, and Genentech survives. I yeah. Mean, Genentech's a big company. It is. And uh, – one of the one of their early advances from this time was using essentially cloning to make interferon in a more quick and efficient way. And they had a market for it in the eighties. One of the one of the things they were trumpeting it as a treatment for was Kaposi's sarcoma. Oh, sure. The the skin lesions that were a common side effect of AIDS. Um, so suddenly, that's a very visible, high profile cancer that they can treat. And I think I, th- this is the period that I remember reading about interferon a lot. Um, in connection with the w- With AIDS, AIDS and in particular in the late 80s, early 90s when... Um, that was very much a clutch to any kind of a hope yeah, um, right. media era. Before the age of the, of the, the multi-cocktail. AZT. Uh, yeah, uh, because, you know, that was the huge 
epidemiological story of the time. Uh, it had a narrative, like whole communities were dying. It had famous faces attached. Right. And it had this kind of end of the world hopelessness where we don't see any way to stop this. This literally could be hundreds of millions of deaths. Right. And so, yeah, interferon was mooted as, because this was still people's backstop in their mind, if we can just get interferon to work, you know, that's going to be the promising treatment here. And the problem, as it turned out, is that interferon does not work on cancer. And, and, and it wasn't a question of the, I mean, was the cloning, uh, effective at creating actual interferon? Yeah, we finally got enough industrial interferon to test. We could try it on all different kinds of cancers. We could finally do large-scale peer-reviewed studies on what this works on and what it doesn't. And it turns out interferon has really no use with cancer at all. Like, it, it was kind of a naive assumption, scientists now realize, to just think that the body magically had the ability to kill cancer and all you had to do is flip a switch. Right, right, right. Interferon could turn on the body's own cancer-fighting abilities. It's really related to the the magical thinking of the alchemists that deep down, we should be able to defeat all this stuff. You just have to unlock your hidden potential. Right. Well, so did it have any additional use? Was it a gasoline additive or did it did it produce umami if sprinkled on on green beans? Uh, it did actually not green beans or gasoline. I'm sorry to say, do oh. not, do not sprinkle. You know, you could, it could, it would be funny if it was still some $20 billion additive just sure. to, to put it on rich people's burgers. Well, yeah, just, it, it's like, an MSG substitute. Like, you know, you go to Manhattan today and there's a, you know, gold leaf on your pork belly or whatever, <laughs> just to show how fancy your, your lobster burger is. I wonder if I'd feel queasy eating interferon on my pot stickers as I do with MSG, the ultimate poison. Well, if somebody tells you it's a sticky peptide that they got out of stem cells by giving it the flu, uh, I think I'd feel a little queasy. Yeah. Uh, it turned out, so for a while it actually, it's, it's one, it had very limited cancer use. Certain kinds of renal cancer, kidney cancer oh. seemed to respond to it. The problem was it was just, it was so, it was such a negligible help and the flu like side effects, the toxicity problems were still there. So it very quickly got displaced by m- more targeted drugs and therapies, you know, um, there was a new generation of, of drugs coming out. And this time we understood the biological mechanisms better. Uh, it wasn't just like, hey, I made a cell, squirt this, let me eat some. Yeah. Like we, this time we were actually kind of targeting the, the cancers in a better way. So even for renal cancer, it was, it was very quickly made obsolete. But uh, it did turn out to have some other uses. I think to this day, it is pres- interferon, you know, the the miracle drug I read as a kid has very limited use, but it's still prescribed for hepatitis. Hmm. Um, oh, hepatitis. I got lucky. <laughs> was that your bingo card? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, and there it was. Oh, I thought you meant you personally were lucky. I didn't, re- oh, I didn't no. realize you had been looking for a hepatitis treatment. No, I never have had hepatitis, oh, okay. thank God. I thought you had a bingo card of 25 personal illnesses <laughs> that you were hoping interferon would beat. The, the two areas in which it did have some application were hepatitis and multiple sclerosis. Oh. Apparently, it, it, it does some good for MS sufferers in certain situations. So it wasn't a total dead end the way, you know, it wasn't a fraud like cold fusion was. Right. But what it was was just a very promising alley for future research, you know, like a, a very early, 
you know, theory. It sure. was, it was, it was Ada Lovelace saying, you know, Hey, what if this someday? Uh, but in the, in the age of mass media, it quickly became a, a, a furor. Well, now, uh, now that we have, uh, I, I think, uh, progressed beyond the, the, the great prohibition on stem cell research. Is that, is that the case? Are we now at liberty to use stem cells, uh, to research them as a cure? Because for many years, right, stem cells seemed also to be uh, a miracle drug, uh, uh, or a, rather a source of miracle drugs. But we were prohibited by yeah. In this case, political it, in this case, it wasn't uh, scarcity keeping us away. Right. It was. Uh, it was the. It was the kind of religious and ethical fears you were talking about around cloning and. Well, and it and it involved yeah it involved fetuses, which are of course a. Uh, a, a real cause celeb here in our time. When George W. Bush banned the use of federal funding for stem cell testing, other than lines that already existed, he explicitly appealed to not science, but religious beliefs. You know, he says, you know, because life is such a sacred gift from God, right? Uh, we shouldn't be monkeying around with this. We should not monkey. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> Not got monkey. <laughs> it was partially revoked by uh, Obama. So there has been, and and there there is. I, I don't know of any movement to to return to the the kind of Reagan and then Bush era rules. But the but the but stem cell research was always ongoing in in Europe. It was never prohibited. And did stem cell research similarly produce? Uh, resu- uh, not the expected results. I think it's too early to say. I feel like it's still ongoing, but it's the same kind of a thing where you're you you're right to be suspicious of it because it seems like such a sky's the limit kind of a thing. Like, right. We don't know what this is going to do, but you know what? It could be really great. And then the headlines are: stem cells can cure AIDS and cancer. And, yeah, and right. Cancer and stem cells were going to be the thing that that allowed us all to live Methuselah-like lives. And it is kind of magical thinking. Like, these are cells that have not yet differentiated. Therefore, they could be anything. They could be anything. Therefore, they could be the magic curing things. That's right. Uh, Although they could also give us two tongues. Do you really think that's that's possible? <coughs> do I think two tongues are possible? <laughs> when two tongues go to war. The uh, When you talk to scientists today about interferon and kind of this this brief flirtation with the public imagination they'll they'll say that the really the main legacy that interferon gave us was uh skepticism like it huh. it was it it kind of treated you know because it was the boy who cried wolf or the sticky peptide that cried wolf or whatever it really uh cautioned a lot of scientists to uh to bring less hype around potential cures and treatments for cancer. So there's, I think, in at least in the scientific community, if not in the media, you see a, a lot less rushing to optimistic judgment. Do you, though? I don't know. Like at Fred, not, you know, not, not according to my friend at Fred Hutch, who's convinced that the, the, the glow-in-the-dark electric eel DNA or whatever is right. going to... It's going to save us all from every kind of tumor. I mean, that kind of chastising uh, mistake seems like it would only affect the immediate generation. Like the the 250 scientists that are working on things that might be a big splash are all sort of, uh, uh, you know, they keep their noses down a little bit. But they people that come along five years later, 
are like, miracle cure! It'll be like, sure, you super dummies fell for interferon, but now I've got the real deal, That's my right. super destructicon. That's right. Uh, like, this stuff can't fail. Yeah, my pigtipus, uh, my pigtipus urine is going <laughs> to restore a lustrous head of hair. I feel like I'd rather die of cancer than drink pigtipus urine. Well, I didn't say you had to drink it. Oh, that's fair. I shouldn't have assumed. Is it an enema? Uh, <laughs> let's assume that a pigtipus urine enema gave you a healthy head of hair. Would you do it? Uh, this is like the flea bag thing about whether you'd sacrifice years of your life to be conventionally attractive. Uh, no. I think I would just uh, be like Ron Howard and wear a hat uh-huh. and uh, and keep the pigtipus away from my butt. Is that okay? Would you sacrifice years of your life to be conventionally attractive? I mean, more so than you <laughs> even are now. More so? I mean, it's hard to even imagine, <laughs> but uh, no. It wouldn't really help you now. You're happily married and your kids are grown. That's exactly what, what right. What are you going to do with your attractiveness? And I'm in, a, I'm in a culture where I was lucky enough to be born a man. Right. Well, you're also already j- famous and rich. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm not, I'm not the right audience for this hypothetical, right. I guess. Right. What if you could skateboard as good as Tony Hawk? But what, you, what do I sacrifice? Well, it's the pigtipus enema still. Oh, I thought it was five years of my life. <laughs> well, let's say it's five years of your life. Uh, I think I would take the enema to skateboard like Tony Hawk, but not sacrifice five any of, of my life. life. Right. Because in five years, I feel like I could, you know, you really have to measure the good you could do in five years. And you think, well, I could, you know. Is that better than a, a, a kickflip? But Probably. you always think of it as being the last five years of your life where, you know, uh, God willing, you're just sitting around anyway. That sounds pretty good, honestly. Like when, when people talk about how sad the elderly are in homes eating soft foods and watching reruns. Yeah. I think, you know what? I should have. Sign me up. I should have chosen the kickflip 25 years ago. And that concludes... Interferon, entry 652.ps10303, certificate number 40478, in the omnibus. Futurelings, I should say that, in fact, there are about 2,500 possible guitar chords. So... Quite a few more than 1,000 playable guitar chords. But those are those are possible ones. Like, yeah. you know, there's no way a Rush record uses more than 1,800 of those. Yeah, right. I mean, most people don't. You don't play the guitar in Mixolydian mode. You would have to be a really good guitar player to, to know, or a, a, a genius musician to know 150 guitar chords. Alicia Keys famously said she knew 150 guitar chords. I probably know 11 guitar chords that I could that I could play and say like for sure I know this is is that this right chord. 11 yeah. chords well I maybe, mean, maybe not, slightly more you should not demystify your art cuz now I'm like I feel like I should just take a couple weeks and learn my 11 well, chords I'm afraid you probably could I mean you know I know a G I know a G minor I know a G7 I know a G minor 7 and then I start to run out <laughs> right around there. I mean, I know I could do that with an A, a D, a, a B, and an, and an E. Well, that's twenty eight right there. Right, then. but but uh, but you know, I start to come come to the end. Like, what what is a? I mean, I play things that are augmented nines, but I don't know what they are. It's just like I I play a 
I play a seven and then I take one away or right. something. Right. Do you have to know the name for the thing to say I that you know it? I think you do. It? I think if you're going to say, I know 150 guitar chords and somebody throws out a, you know, play a G sus five, you better be able to play it. We need to get Alicia Keys on some kind of game show. And just, well, it's a game show where she sits with a guitar and just, and fields all your guitar nonsense. I don't even know how to say some of the guitar chords. I mean, I don't know. I, I, we make jokes about Mixolydian, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, but I think a lot of the success that you have as, as a musician has to do with your your right hand, your rhythm hand. Can you put together a seductive or taboo rhythm with your swinging hand as opposed to make the sassy chords? Not the changes. Yeah, if you're Guitar George over here, like... <laughs> Ultimately, who cares? Oh, yeah. So uh, the Sultans of Swing, apparently, were the one band who knew all the chords. Well, George did. Do you, the rest of the band didn't? <laughs> Probably just, not. Is he just yelling things to the keyboard player? <laughs> the bass player is just sort of thumping along. It's guitar George that's throwing it around, but he does, he's mostly rhythm. He doesn't want to make it cry or sing. So is it implying that the Sultans of Swing have a lead guitarist who knows not that many chords? Yeah, that. well, the lead guitarist in this case... It's because his guitar is nicer. Like, George has a... An old guitar is yeah. all he can afford. He just he just thumps along, but it's uh, you know it's the it's the lead guy like like crucially Angus Young just plays the lead guitar. He you know the chords are all his brother, and his brother's got that swinging right hand, creates the uh, the swagger. Keith Richards, in my opinion, having followed the Rolling Stones for most of my adult life, I feel like Keith played some really good solos. In the middle period, after Brian fell into the swimming pool, but before Ron, or you know, uh, before uh, Mick Taylor, before Mick Taylor showed up, but once Mick Taylor was there, Keith never played another lead, as far as I can tell. But but the Stones don't want you to know that they want they want Keith to be the legendary Stones guitarist. But a lot of his solos, I mean, he played some great solos. Don't get me. Are you just saying he was sad that Brian drowned, and so that inspired him to play some good solos? Maybe. Do, maybe. We, do we need another drowning? He was, I will drown Ronnie Wood. He was gacked in, out on in, heroin. In I think. urine. If it if it gets a better <laughs> solo out of Keith, maybe when the when the heroin goes away, so too does the gift. Mm. Mm. Problematic. Ouch. Anyway, uh, let's hope that none of this is none of this survives. Uh, because we're going to cut it out. <laughs> well, because it just it, it it asks so many questions it can't answer. Well, sure. I just threatened the life of Ronnie Wood. I'm probably on a watch list now. But uh, but go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Omnibus Project at Ken Jennings at John Roderick. Uh, go to Instagram and see me for who I really am. Uh, email us at theomnibusproject at gmail dot com. Um, and we will read your letters on our special program that is available to you if you give to our Patreon. Monthly omnibus addenda. Important elements that you, our contemporary listeners, thought were being left out of That's these right. pages. That's right. Uh, that is at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, you can go to our Futurelings page on Facebook, which is a merry bunch of pigtopuses all giving one another... Urine enemas to cure their baldness. They're currently mad that we did not uh, talk more about George Romero when we talked about zombies. Oh, they're right, angry. of course. Well, they're all zombie completists. Well, let's talk about it right now. Good job, George Romero. Hey, 
Nice job. High five. A plus putting those zombies in that graveyard and whatnot. Yeah, that was that was clever and you really scared us. But not really. You you basically gave Jonathan Colton the topic of one of his songs. People are also mad we didn't mention the Jonathan Colton song, so good sorry, job. Sorry, bro, but I got there. Sorry, broettes. Uh you can mail us stuff. Real stuff. Mail us your zombie hands at P.O. Box. Don't, actually. At P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Zombie hands sounds like a kind of poisonous toadstool. Like, oh, look, there's zombie hands growing under that tree. Oh, right. Don't eat the zombie hand berry. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization is going to survive. Hopefully we find whatever the miracle drug is that allows us to live forever. And uh, and John and I uh, come to your homes every day in the far future to listen to the latest omnibus with you. Let's do. But if the worst comes soon, if our genetics are already too spoiled, if only our children survive, uh, who knows? This recording could be our final word to you. But if Providence allows, we hope to return to you soon for another entry in the omnibus. travel to recover from heartbreak to trace your dna escape the internet on our podcast a way to go we've been exploring all the reasons we travel i'm gerilyn gerba i'm pavia rosati and together we're the founders of travel website fab and we've already heard so many great stories such as an actress in rural kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex a graffiti artist tagging the islands of southeast asia a producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert listen to a way to go on the iHeartRadio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 